0: Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 7 The Earth Moves. The recent catastrophic earthquake in Syria and Turkey occurred exactly 1960 years and one day after the earthquake of AD 63. A moment of silence would appear in order. The Mediterranean in general, and Italy in particular, has always been prone to earthquake. It's one price the region pays for all the countervailing benefits. The why of the phenomenon is well enough known. The Italian peninsula straddles the edges of two tectonic plates floating on a subterranean ocean of molten stone, pushing one against the other until one or both sides gives way under pressure and then settles down, only eventually to repeat the process. Not that the ancients knew this, and not that we moderns should get too superior on that score. The theory itself was widely pooh-poohed well into the 20th century. Failing the data points that got modern geology up to speed with how the globe works, the ancients came up with more figurative and imaginative, even poetic, ways of describing the Earth's ways. Earthquakes? There is a story for that. Once upon a time, the god Jove, fed up with the destructive antics of some giants, broke up their tribe and imprisoned them beneath various mountains all around the Mediterranean. These wretched creatures rustled from time to time in frustration. On one memorable occasion, some actually managed to escape just long enough to rob the god Hercules, of cattle that he, in turn, had stolen from Spain. It was a bad idea. He retrieved those cattle and cast the giants back underground, near Mount Vesuvius as it happens. The local humans honored his good works by naming the town of Herculaneum after him. It's a good story, but it didn't necessarily wash with more sophisticated minds of later times. Aristotle ascribed earthquakes to gale-force wind inside of the earth a step up from giants, I suppose. By the first century A.D., Pliny the Elder alludes vaguely to subterranean spirit of air and water, to vapor beneath the land, lifting land. Subterrestrial bloat, so to speak. Not a bad take on the matter, given the state of knowledge at the time. He notes that earthquakes tend to presage other events even worse The city of Rome never experienced a shock which was not the forerunner of some great calamity. Seneca, philosopher, playwright, tutor to Nero for a time, until Nero became emperor and found the fellow boring, had some thoughts in the matter. He throws up his hands and goes back to his favorite subject, stoicism. We must seek solace for the anxious and dispel overmastering fear. For what can any one believe quite safe if the world itself is shaken, and its most solid parts totter to their fall? Where indeed can our fears have limit if the one thing immovably fixed, which upholds all other things in dependence upon it, begins to rock, and the earth lose its chief characteristic stability? What refuge can our weak bodies find? Whither shall anxious ones flee when fear springs from the ground and is drawn up from earth's foundations? If roofs at any time begin to crack and premonitions of fall are given, there is general panic. All hurry pell-mell out of doors. They abandon their household treasures and trust for safety to the public street. He goes on to shrug his shoulders, stoically, getting all fatalistic and even a bit irritated at the victims of the earthquake. Let us cease to listen to the people that have bid adieu to Campania since the time of this disaster and have removed to other districts, vowing they will never set foot in that quarter again. Who can guarantee them more? Easy for him to say. He wasn't actually there. And there's something more than a little bit cold about taking this kind of tragedy as a starting point for mere philosophy. Lives and livelihoods were lost. That should affect anyone with an ounce of compassion. Seneca seems determined to push that sort of thing off his radar completely. And yet, for all that, he did start out with the most extended description of the catastrophe— We have just had news, my esteemed Lucilius, in that Pompeii, the celebrated city of Campania, has been overwhelmed in an earthquake which shook all the surrounding districts as well. The city, you know, lies on a beautiful bay running far back from the open sea and is surrounded by two converging shores, on the one side of that Sorrentum and Stabii, on the other that of Herculaneum. The disaster happened in winter, a period for which our forefathers used to claim immunity from such dangers. On the 5th of February, in the consulship of Regulus and Virginius, this shock occurred, involving widespread destruction over the whole province of Campania. The district had never been without risk of such a calamity, but had been hitherto exempt from it, having escaped time after time from groundless alarm. The extent of the disaster may be gathered from a few details. Part of the town of Herculaneum fell. The buildings left standing are very insecure. The colony of Nucharia had a painful experience of the shock, but sustained no great damage. Naples was just touched by what might have proved a great disaster to it. Many private homes suffered, but no public building was destroyed. The villas, built on the cliffs everywhere, shook, but without damage being done. In addition, they say, a flock of 600 sheep was destroyed and statues were split open. Some people were driven out of their minds and wandered about in helpless idiocy. The quake was the great event of AD 63 and, of course, a prelude to the eruption to come. A second prelude came in AD 64 in Naples when a repeat quake seriously damaged a theater in which, by coincidence, Nero was performing. If Pliny was right about earthquakes being the opening act for greater catastrophe, that could explain the great fire of AD 64, the fire in which Nero allegedly fiddled. More Credibly, having arrived in town when the fire was already well underway, he was inspired to recite a few lines of poetry, noting the similarity to Troy's burning. Such are the advantages of a classical education. By the way, often overlooked in descriptions of this great fire was the fact that the urban prefect of Rome, essentially the mayor, was Flavius Sabinus, brother of future Emperor Vespasian. That he kept the job after this catastrophe suggests that he did as good a job as could be expected under the circumstances. Nero sympathizers generally give Nero high marks for the aftermath. At least a tip of the hat to Sabinus would not be amiss. But I digress. Pompeii, AD 63 a pleasant city of some antiquity even then, and building standards that were not necessarily of the highest order. Whether this was from ignorance or parsimony is unknowable. In any event, the shaking ground took down and made unsafe any number of structures. Of the population of 20,000 also shaken, many left with no intention of returning. Easy to understand why. Herculaneum presumably had higher standards, or perhaps was just farther away from the epicenter. Either way, as seen, it suffered less damage, and Naples hardly any damage at all. What has any of this to do with AD 79? Fast is prelude. Again, in history, as in so much of life, context is everything, and the earthquake was a serious piece of context. The city of Pompeii in AD 63 was not the city it would be in AD 79. The earthquake of 63 was a shot across the bow, the giants underground flexing their muscles. Things fell apart. The center could not hold. So what were the consequences? Rebuilding began once people recovered. We're not sure when. We are also not sure how much was financed from Rome. While there are numerous citations of Nero spreading largesse across the empire, there is nothing in Tacitus that mentions his doing so for this disaster, which is not proof that he did nothing, but certainty would be nice. Coincidentally, the city had one potential advocate in the person of Popea Sabina, wife of Nero. She was actually born in Pompeii. There's reason to believe in the so-called House of Menander and still owned a brick and tile factory in the area. If anyone had a vested interest in the region's ongoing prosperity and in getting in on the rebuilding business, it would be her. Or possibly not. The few mentions of her in our sources do not paint a very generous picture good-looking but self-indulgent. It's the gaps in reporting that makes ancient history, and modern news reporting for that matter, such a frustrating exercise. In the competition for attention from would-be investors, Pompeii did have one big advantage over other cities around the bay. It was close to the River Sarno, a watery highway into the Sarno Valley where companion farmers grew all that abundant grain and grape. Pompeii, near the river, near the coast, was a logical spot for the merchant class to set up business. And since the earthquake saw a large number of the leisured class, coupon cutters and such, leave town, the more entrepreneurial sorts, men and women willing to take a chance and work hard, filled the vacuum. No surprise, then, that archaeology finds a shift in the nature of building usage. The town had previously had some nice large houses. After the earthquake, there's evidence of repurposing some of these structures to more commercial uses. Walls facing the streets are now opened up and made into shopfronts. It makes sense. If people desert a city en masse, there's a lot of bargain real estate to be had, or rented, and a chance for a chancer to start up a new business. Yes, yes, the risk of earthquake again, and worse could happen. But what could be worse than that fire up in Rome? Anyway, life is uncertain, and you just have to put up with it. Isn't that what that Seneca fellow is always gassing on about? Big risk, big reward. And there were some big rewards for some of the locals, as we shall see in coming weeks. One of the more striking examples of the morphing nature of the buildings is the so-called Villa of the Mysteries, a short walk from Pompeii proper, very nice place, nicely situated on top of a hill, good views, improved over the centuries from a humble farmhouse to a many-roomed villa belonging to the de, a noble Samnite family. It's chiefly known for one room only, widely reproduced, a red background on which are various men and women engaged in some obscure Dionysiac mystic ritual. With that showstopper of a room, it is easy to overlook other aspects of the building, Windowless storage rooms held some architectural features that had once graced nicer rooms. In the corner of one bedroom was found a pile of onions. Agricultural implements were stacked in a sunroom. In short, purely utilitarian stuff was stashed in rooms that had, in better times, been intended for more domestic purposes. What had happened? the earthquake had happened. The exact circumstances are unclear, but there is a marker that shows transfer of ownership from the prior householders to one of their freedmen who happened to have adopted their name, that is, Lucius Stachidius Zosimus. Here's hoping he was able to enjoy it. We can only speculate Other than the items mentioned above, the villa had little to offer the archaeologists. The former occupants, if any, may have sold off the finer family goods to sustain necessities, or moved on, leaving the house itself unfurnished. If the new owner was more a man of the soil than a man of leisure, he may well not have cared about any fine goods. He had crops to grow. The one exception to all this practical material was a large statue of the Empress Livia, wife of Augustus. Given the rest of the stuff in the villa, it seems oddly out of place. Was it just one more object that the previous owners left behind, possibly by mistake? A parting gift to the new owner? Perhaps the new owner had a liking for it, or wanted to show his approval of the powers that be. And, after all, she was a goddess, thanks to Claudius. The villa is outside the city walls. Inside the city walls, we find other newcomers who, like our freedmen, had made something of themselves and were now eager to improve their social status. 1. Numerius Popidius Ampliatus, a freedman of the Popidii family, took it upon himself to rebuild the Temple of Isis, destroyed utterly in the earthquake. He was thinking of his own posterity. Having been born a slave, he could never rise to public office, but that could not be said of his children. And the plaque over the temple has less to say of Ampliatus than it does of his son. To quote, Numerius Popidius Calcinus, son of Numerius, Restored from its foundation, the Temple of Isis collapsed from the earthquake. On account of his generosity, the town council had elected him to their order without further fee. And then the kicker, when he was six years old. We are talking about a temple to a goddess. And yet, Calcinus not only gets top billing, but his name is writ larger than that of Isis. This suggests an interesting conversation between the stone carver and the patron. And who was the patron? Was it a committee of the town council? Was it the father himself? And what are the local patricians, the ranking high renters whom he wished to join? Did they laugh at this man? Or did he manage to charm them regardless of his low status? Or did he laugh at them? Living well-being, after all, the best revenge. Who was being mocked at the boys' at election to the city council at such a young age? Perhaps no one. Perhaps the whole thing was done with totally straight face. Perhaps the other city council members were not quite so far removed from obscurity that they could afford to be toffee-nosed. Well, who could say? After all, the current emperor, assuming Vespasian, was not exactly top drawer now, was he? The world had indeed changed a good deal in recent years, not at all what it used to be. We also have a bas-relief of public temples carved in stone and placed on a lararium in the house of Eucundus. Or, rather, we had... The piece in question was prized off the lerarium in the 1970s and presumably now graces the very private collection of some antisocial billionaire waiting for his, surely not her, death either to resurface and be returned by appalled heirs or destroyed by heirs frightened of legal consequences and bad PR. On the plus side, there are good photographs and even some plaster casts of the pieces. A definition. The Lorarium was the small private altar found in any self-respecting Roman house where daily prayers were offered to the household gods. The Romans were big on gods, large and small. There wasn't an aspect or object in life that didn't have some kind of connection to the spiritual world. The lararium in question belonged to a businessman-banker, Lucius Caecilius Jucundus, whose name will be familiar to students of the Cambridge Latin Course textbook, where he features, as part of a narrative thread, something to keep students interested between memorizing verb forms and noun declensions. The marble is unique in the subject matter. It measures 18 by 86 by 6 centimeters. One panel shows the collapsed Vesuvian Gate and a pair of donkeys pulling a cart away, presumably with useless rubble. The other shows the triple temple of the Capitoline Triad, consisting of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, looking very off-kilter indeed. Off-kilter, but seemingly intact. Seemingly. If the rendition is at all accurate... This was a structure requiring demolition. And the belief is that even as late as AD 79, it had not been rebuilt. Which, if nothing else, makes one wonder how this oversight got past the powers that be. You would think that restoring a temple... No, scratch that. THE temple, THE temple to the mightiest of the gods would have been near the top of the agenda so far as urban renewal was concerned. Granted, you want to repair the aqueducts first, and the central thermal baths, of course. You can't live a civilized life without central thermal baths. And a new temple to the spirit of Augustus and of Vespasian that found a place in the Forum, which should have embarrassed the still-living emperor. One would love to know what the financiers of that temple thought they were on about. One would love even more to know what Vespasian thought they were on about. Was he even aware of the as-yet-unrestored temple of Jupiter, the counterpart of which, in Rome, he had rebuilt in a trice after its destruction on the eve of his elevation? Seventeen years... Even the Temple of Isis, that strange Egyptian cult, was already back in business by then. How much patience did they imagine Jove was going to have? Well, one could argue that before eighty seventy nine was over, they would find out. Next time, some more detail in Eucundus and his sort of fellow. As a friendly reminder, if you like this work and have a few dollars or pounds or euros to spare, you can donate to the cause on Patreon or buy me a beer, or buy my books available on Amazon and other fine booksellers here and there. If you don't have a few dollars or pounds or euros to spare, upvotes, subscribing, and talking up the series would help the enterprise. In the meantime,